What's up, Met fans? It's time for episode six of Believe in Queens. I'm Joe Serralo, as always, joined by my man, Tyler Ward. We've got a lot to dive into. We are fresh off a series victory, not only against the Braves, but at the Braves, making it that much sweeter. We're going to be all over that. We're going to preview the upcoming four games set at Wrigley with the Chicago Cubs. That'll take us right into the All-Star break. This, of course, is our last show before the All-Star game. And we're going to dive into, of course, some trade deadline rumors. Not your typical July 31st deadline this year. It's August 2nd, but Sandy Alderson's already made some remarks about it, about where the Mets will be looking to get some help, to add some padding on this already stacked first place team in the National League East. I can't wait. Tyler, how you doing, man? Oh, I'm feeling electric, right? I just I just finished my recording for my post-game show that I usually do on Wardy NYM. For people watching this on YouTube, make sure to smash that like and subscribe on You Know the Drill, guys, and make sure to rate, review wherever you get your podcast. This is episode six, and I think this is probably going to be the most pumped-up one yet. And I, I don't know how it can be anything else. I'm just I'm so pumped. Let's get into this one, Joe. Take it away. Let's do it. First, I do want to remind everyone that this show is brought to you by our proud sponsors, over at BetOnline. Head over to BetOnline.ag. You can get your lines, your updates, your news, everything regarding betting on baseball, NFL futures, fighting, whatever you need, you can get it at BetOnline. And make sure to sign up with the promo code BELIEVE. That's B-L-E-A-V, BELIEVE. You can get your 50% welcome bonus over there. So head over to BetOnline and let the games begin. All right, Joe, let, let's let's just talk about initial raw reactions, right? I know that we're going to go over each game from this series, but in a nutshell, we just came off of this high, winning 7-3, Series W. You know, going into this series, we had, of course, hopes and aspirations that the Mets would come out with victories. When you look at no Marte, no McNeil, that ends up being no problem for this Mets team. So just give me your initial raw reaction to the Mets winning 2-3 here in Hotlanta, no less, against these hot Braves again. Another situation where it's not a problem for this Mets team, and they continue to prove why they are the best team here in the NL East. Yeah, man, I'm pumped. I feel like it's October right now. You know, this this series, it it really had a playoff atmosphere to it. You know, give Brave fans credit, man. They were loud. I think Atlanta had uh, two sellouts. Not Oh, they showed out, as they should. That was great to see. Yeah, you know, you, you, you win trophies, you hang banners, people show up. And so, you know, give them credit. They were there. They were loud. The first two games were great pitchers' duels. And then, of course, today, the bats just took off. Fogo power from Escobar. Lindor with a three-run piss missile. Mark Canna going deep to left. I mean, everything today was just the perfect game. It was the light day that Mets fans needed. You know, the last two days were at least seven innings of stress. You know, nine innings of stress game one. And then last night, the bullpen blew it. But we were right there neck and neck with him for about the first seven. Today was just easy watching. It was fun. Charlie Morton. You know, we talked about it last episode. The Mets have done really well against Charlie Morton, but over his last five or six starts this season, he's been as dominant as anyone in that Braves rotation. So I didn't know what to expect here. Were the Mets going to prevail against him again, or was Morton going to keep his hot streak going? Well, the Mets did the job. Chris Bassett showed that mental toughness that I was saying last episode, it looked like he'd been lacking throughout most of June and early July. Bassett went out there today, and I believe he made one mistake to Matt Olson. But outside of that, man, he looked really damn good. It, it was just a fun game. It was an electric game, especially for the Mets to come out. And we know the trend with them. We've talked about it a lot in previous pods. When the Mets score early and they score in the first, second, and third inning, they're not just a lock to score more often, but they're almost a sure lock to win that game. And that's what happened here for the Mets. They scored early in this one, and it was just an absolute blast to see the Mets tack on early runs here against this Braves team. After the first two games in the series that we'll be getting into here shortly, they were pitchers' duels in a lot of ways. You know, even though that, yes, the Mets thankfully entered this series where you're facing Max Freed, you're facing Spencer Strider, the young flamethrower, and you're facing Charlie Morin, the three arguably hottest pitchers right now for the Braves in this rotation. None of them go past five innings, which was a huge accomplishment in itself. But to see 47 strikeouts from both teams combined through the first two games, right? It was by no means one that you're looking at, oh, this is going to be, in fact, a hitter's duel. No, it was a pitcher's duel. So the Mets to come out to jump on Morton, just like what they did in their first matchup in the series split earlier in this year, was absolutely huge. They got on Morton, and they got on often. They scored five earned runs, and the six, what, four to five innings I pitched was absolutely electric. I'm so proud of this Mets team to jump out the way that they did, and especially here in game three, and then we'll go back to game two and originally game one 
the Mets beat the Braves at their own game. The Braves did not score one measly run this entire series without the home run ball. They're the best home run hitting team in all the NL. They also lead the NL and strikeouts for a reason versus a Mets club that normally has their issues with the home run ball. However, when they score, they get themselves three absolute bombs in this one. Thanks to, as you said already, Eduardo Escobar, Mark Hanna, Francisco Lindor, who I have so much to say about. Talk about stepping up, especially with Mar- the likes of Marte and McNeil out the live. He's earning his money in big series like this. So shout out Francisco, Mr. Smile. But I'm just so taken back by the Mets jumping on Morton, especially jumping on the bullpen a little bit too that we saw with some bad defensive errors on their front. But overall, huge, huge win, 7-3 in this Game 3. So before we get on to Game 2, that loss and originally Game 1, that was really setting the stone, uh, setting the tone for this series, what was your biggest takeaway from this Game 3? Because in my personal opinion, Joe, outside of Seabass, again, looking absolutely strong for the Mets here, giving the Mets six strong, only one earned run. He had that one mistake. He threw a changeup that was right down the pipe, unfortunately, to Olsen. But I got to give credit to Bassett, he did not even have his best stuff, in my opinion, today. There were a lot of haters because he wasn't utilizing the fastball. He actually, fastball was like the fourth or fifth on his six-pitch mix of the amount of times he utilized it in today's win. And he knew that because the Braves are so good against fastballs, not so much against off-speed. But they were really swinging and missing regardless. So besides that mistake, he looked like a stud. Six innings, only one or run, six strikeouts on 99 pitches. But I got to go with Francisco Lindor. And this really goes in hand with him the entire series. I mean, Pete Alonso will get to him in game one, but he really labored in this one. Struck out three times in game three. Struck out numerous times in this series. Wasn't looking too pretty with his at-bats. But Lindor, even though he went one for five today, or one for one for five, uh, yeah, just making sure that's correct. It is. Two-run yep. score, the three-run bomb. I mean, it's really hard for me not to choose someone like him, the way that he stepped up both at the plate and defensively in this game three and the overall series. No, Lindor was definitely the X factor on offense. And I know you mentioned he was just one for five. Well, that one was a big one, but also on the series, five for 14. I mean, that's better than a 333 clip. So Lindor had a really good series, tacked on four RBI to that five for 14 total. But when you look at the difference in this one, both teams had three home runs. What it comes down to, is that the Mets style of offense, getting hits, making contact, getting on base. You know, the Mets, I believe, have the fourth lowest K rate in baseball, whereas Atlanta has the second highest K rate in the majors, only behind the Angels. So that's the highest in the National League for the Braves. That works, right? That's how the Royals beat us in 2015. The Royals didn't strike out. They put the ball on play better than any other team in baseball. The Mets back in 2015 we're an all or nothing team. You had Murphy hitting home runs like nobody's business in the postseason. Cespedes was all or nothing. That was the Mets in 2015. Well, now you're seeing a bit of a role reversal, right? This team doesn't have crazy home run numbers outside of Alonzo, but they put the ball in play. Atlanta's three home runs, all solo shots because they weren't able to accumulate base runners. They weren't able to put together a string of hits. When the Mets put together a string of hits, a blast like Lindor's knocked in three, as opposed to Atlanta's blasts all being solo shots. So even with each team knocking three balls out of the park apiece, the Mets' ability to get on base and put rallies together and, and you know just consistently put the ball in play and not be all or nothing like Atlanta, that was the ultimate difference maker in today's game. It was, and it was so it was so beautiful to see again the Mets really take the Braves playbook with the home runs, but at the same time know how to manage to get guys on because the Mets did a really strong job, especially against Morton here in game three, by grinding out at bats. We've seen Nimmo do it time and time again, but we saw some others as well. I was really impressed with the Mets and their ability. And someone that I thought was a huge X factor that should not get slept on in the slightest. Normally he's known for his wizardry and the infield with that defense, but batting cleanup today is Luis Gourmet goes one for four with the RBI double opposite field down the third baseline. I mean, I'm not even surprised at this point. I'm really surprised when Guillerme is going over because he's just that clutch for this team. But yeah, well, two initial- things about Guillerme, man. I mean, look, yeah, first off, we're one and oh when Guillerme is our cleanup hitter. So, you know, Keep take that to the bank. <laughs> I, I saw that today. You know, I saw him hitting cleanup and I had like PTSD to early in 2015 when we had Eric Campbell hitting cleanup. Oh, when no. John Mayberry hitting cleanup. I was like, oh, my God, Luis Guillerme is hitting cleanup. We're one and freaking oh, and he does, baby. But also, you mentioned his oppo taco RBI double. Luis Guillorme, in, in a day and age where, and I was actually just having a conversation with someone from Believe earlier today about banning the shift. And I was saying, I don't know if I love banning it because the thought of telling, you know, grown men, professional athletes, like, oh, you can't stand there 
just doesn't sound right to me. I but what I told him was, I'd like to see more of these athletes go opposite field and then naturally watch the shift fade away. Tyler, make no mistake about it. He's not the best hitter in the world. I think hitting about 300 where he's at right now is better than the actual hitter he is. But Luis Guillorme goes opposite field better than anyone or as good as anyone in Major League Baseball. The Mets happen to have two of the best opposite field hitting lefties in the league in McNeil when he's out there and Luis Guillorme. So Guillorme just putting his skill set, you know, on full display. And, you know, the guy, he, he doesn't strike out. He goes deep in at-bats. You remember in spring training, I think it's two, maybe even three years ago by now, what did he have, like a 17-pitch at-bat? Oh, like over 20, and it was against Jordan Hicks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Guillaume doesn't strike out. And, you know, Brandon Nimmo, you touched on him too. He set the tone yesterday, even though the Mets lost. And, you know, Spencer Strider looked good. He had the K numbers. Strider was out of there in five innings. He wasn't able to go deep against us because Nimmo set the tone with a 10-pitch at-bat to start the game off. So, you know, it's guys like Nimmo, guys like Guillaume. They don't have the pop that Lindor, Alonzo, Marte have. But, man, you can really set the tone when you make a pitcher exhaust himself and go deep eight, nine, ten pitches into account, and then a little, you know, base hit opposite field in Guillaume's case today, it's like these guys, they just know how to keep the line moving, man. And that's why it's so much more effective. This team has power, right? Maybe not as much as the Braves, but they have power. But it's so much more effective when you just keep the line moving. You get a couple bloops or a couple ropes, and then you get the blast. That's how you beat a team like Atlanta. And not just in the way that they were getting those bloops and ropes to then the home run, but continuing to grind out those at-bats, right? And as you mentioned, game two, let's shift here for a minute game two. We'll wrap things up on the series going back to game three and enjoying this high. But the lone loss that we saw there, this was another pitching duel, right? After game one, you saw Spencer Strider, again, did not have his best stuff. So I will give the Mets full credit here. Look, even though the offense was anemic and I expected it to be better and it did show up here in game three against Morton, you saw Strider, he only won 4.2 innings. But he did have eight strikeouts again when you got that fastball easily touching 97 to 99 and nasty slider it's going to do some damage to this Mets team that has struggled at times especially against guys that they don't have great backgrounds on that's been the case and that was again however one of the biggest takeaways here in game two for me personally was really what a what was a phenomenal start that just fell short that we can truly blame in part the umpires I know the umps definitely benefited the Mets early on in this one there were so many blown calls left and right and David Pearson and ends up with his final line being 5.1 innings pitch, two earned runs, three walks, nine strikeouts, that lone home run to Matt Olson that blew the doors open from the Mets originally having themselves a lead up army early in this one, one nothing that they got the first run of the game there in the fifth inning, thanks to that lone RBI triple from Francisco Lindor that Ronald Acuna Jr. just did not read well defensively. But then you see there in the sixth, that two-run shot by Olsen. It was a fastball, a little up high that just was right down the plate. However, how do we get there, right? Because Pearson was absolutely shoving. And this is something that I'm pretty sure you're aware of. We've seen a lot in his recent start. He is working quickly. He's working faster yeah. than I feel Peterson has to begin this season. He's really comfortable there on the mound right now. He's been a blessing in disguise for this Mets team. And when you look at the stat line, you might not think it's perfect, but Really, Pearson was doing exactly what I expected him to do against a Braves lineup that struck out a boatload against Scherzer and has struggled mightily at times against lefties, especially a guy like Pearson that can utilize that slider down and in. I mean, it's definitely brutal for those righty hitters. We saw that in display. The lefties down away, too. It was a thing of beauty. But you saw there in the sixth, and I know, again, don't get me wrong, there was a strikeout on Arcia earlier in this one that really was a questionable call that went Pearson the Mets' way. There were some questionable calls that were borderline paint out of the zone. However, the biggest and the most crucial blown call of the game, and it's not even a debate, all Braves fans watching it will tell you the exact same thing. Danzy Swanson, who did absolutely nothing this series, he went 0 for 9. Talk about the best shortstops in the NL. I'm taking Francisco Lindor right now. I'm sorry. I got to be honest with you here after how he stepped up in this one. Swanson, he gets a slider. That should have easily been strike three. It was beautifully painted inside corner there. It's called a complete ball. And because of that reason, it leads to a walk. Bat Olsen then grinds out at bat and takes a dead center two-run shot to end David Pearson's night. But I want to know what your initial reaction was to not only that at bat, that inning, overall how it transpired but David Pearson in a nutshell because I was unbelievably impressed by him and I really hope that Mets fans realize that David is making a great argument to continue to stay in this rotation until proven otherwise yeah honestly the way Peterson's been pitching Tyler it's like you look at our needs and we're going to get into the trade deadline in a little bit shortly on this show but starting pitcher is no longer a pressing need 
in my opinion, because David Peterson has pitched his way into this rotation. Now, can you always use depth? Absolutely. You never know when, it, if and when a guy is going to go down, who the next guy to get injured is going to be. So if the Mets want to go out and get a starter, please be my guest. But right now, bullpen help and another bat, they're way more pressing than starting pitching. And David Peterson is a huge reason for that. He's been just as good and just as reliable as anyone in this rotation. The only knock on him is that typically he doesn't go as deep into games as some of the other guys we have. You know, Walker's given us seven strong multiple times. Scherzer, you expect to go at least seven every outing, right? Peterson sometimes is in that five to six inning range. In fact, most times he is. But when he's out there, he's been as good as anyone. You know, if you're into gambling, I've been eyeing his strikeout props. I think, Tyler, I think you took that as part of a same game parlay, yes, right? Yes, I did. <laughs> and Peterson shattered what he was expected to uh, to, to record, right? If, if it's coming in four and a half, five and a half, this is a guy who in about five straight starts has gone for seven or more Ks, including a couple nine, 10 K performances. He's been dominant. Now, as far as that call to Swanson, it stinks. The umpire was not good. He was not good for either side. This just happened to be probably the most blatant, obvious missed call of the game. What I will say about that Olsen at bat that followed though, you know, I was almost expecting Buck to do the same thing he did in Los Angeles during that at bat. Do you remember Peterson's start against the Dodgers? Went four and two thirds, so he didn't get the win. But he was facing Mookie in the bottom of the yes, pit. Faces were loaded. And after Betts ripped a foul ball, Buck took him out mid at bat. He didn't even hesitate. Never see. Didn't hesitate. And I think he brought in Holderman, who then went on to strike out Betts. I was kind of expecting the same thing. Now, maybe no one was ready, and that's why he didn't do it. But I thought, you know, after Olsen ripped a foul ball off Peterson, I think he just got ahead of one that would have been, you know, gone. Yeah, to, right to the right side. Yep. Yeah. I mean, after that, I was like, ooh, maybe it's the time to take Peterson out right now because Olsen was playing chippy. I think he had five at-bats and five strikeouts in the series prior to that home run. Yes, he so did. So it was like, all right, maybe maybe it's time. Maybe we've unleashed the beast in Olsen a little bit. Maybe get Peterson out there. He left him in. He paid the price. But don't let that take away from what was an absolutely incredible, superb start yet again from David Peterson. In fact, I would argue, even though he ended up he ended up being the losing pitcher in this one, right? Yeah. I would argue that David Peterson outpitched Spencer Strider. I, I think he was, agree. I mean, first off, Strider failed to go five innings. Strider left, the Mets were winning in the game. I mean, I think Peterson definitely outpitched Strider. So when you look at this series from a macro level, all three games, Mets starters outpitched Brave starters every single game this series. There's something colossal to be said for that when no DeGrom and the Braves have had the arguably hottest rotation in baseball for the last six weeks. Oh, absolutely. And the Mets starters in particular went right around for a 1.96 ear ray total in this series. What did the Braves do? Had a just sub five ear ray. But then we see the differences, however. And I'm curious to want to know your stance because we saw in game three, Drew Smith, who I, I we didn't talk about much yet. I thought he looked brilliant. I know he gave up yeah. that home run to Austin That's what Riley. He does, though. Who, who doesn't give up home runs to Austin Riley, right? There's a reason why he's on pace right now for easily 40-plus bombs on the season. Drew, even though he struggled with the home run ball, easily struck out five crucial batters in two innings that he faced against that Braves lineup. So I was impressed. Tommy Hunter gave up that bomb to Eddie Rosario in Game 3, but Rosario already had two extra base hits entering that at-bat. He had the hot hand there. It didn't change anything. The Mets still got the victory without a problem. But there is one reliever, once again, that we find ourselves having discussion with, being inconsistent, and at this point, Joe, I do not know how you justify whatsoever putting this man in any high leverage situation. And that is Seth Lugo. Lugo came in, of course, in game two for David Pearson, got a couple strikeouts, which was awesome. We love that. But then after that, we advanced to the following inning and Seth Lugo just can't get out of his own way. Once again, gives up a couple earned runs because he gets gives up a single or a walk, I believe. Then an absolute tank there. And just like that, this game goes from being a one-run ball game to a 4-1 ball game. So Seth Lugo with a sub-4 year right now on the year. This man has been so Jekyll and Hyde for the Mets all year long. I'm to the point where I can't even stand the idea of having Seth Lugo won in any high-leverage situation, especially in a one-run or tied ball game. You cannot just justify right now call up Adonis Medina make something happen I need better options than Lugo right now it's that piss poor from what we're seeing and at this juncture I don't think you give Lugo any time should he stay in the bullpen if he is then he gets garbage time that is the yeah. only type of time we should be seeing Lugo get correct me if I'm wrong here Joe no Tyler I, I hate to say it he hasn't even the one thing you're wrong about is that he hasn't been Jekyll and Hyde he, he's been consistent but he's been consistently bad 
There, yeah. there, is, there is no on and off. There is no, oh, are we going to get lights out, Lugo? Or are we? No, he's just been bad and unreliable all year long. And, and I hate to say it because, you know, it's like when you look at Seth Lugo and you look at Seth Lugo of the past out of the bullpen, this is a guy who, if you needed a four or five out situation, was so reliable not only to shut things down in the inning he came into the ballgame mid-inning, but also to go out the next inning and be just as dominant. And this year, he has struggled so mightily in the back end of those performances. He was fine coming out of the pen. He was great locking things down after Peterson got pulled. But then in that next inning, when he goes back out there, something about him this season, he just loses it. And we saw another case of it last night. You know, it's funny. I was thinking today, you mentioned garbage time, right? When we were up 7-1, I was like, oh, this is the time Seth Lugo should be pitching. If he didn't pitch last night, I'd rather have Lugo go out there for the final three innings today. I agree with you. And save the rest of our bullpen. Because I'd rather see, obviously, Edwin Diaz, but I'd rather see Adam Adovino. I'd rather see Drew Smith, even though he can be a little shaky himself. I'd rather see Holderman, to your point. I'd rather see Medina. There's about four to five guys, maybe even Tommy Hunter included, that I'd rather see right now in a high leverage situation than Seth Lugo. And it truly breaks my heart because I've loved Seth Lugo since he joined the team in 2016. I, I really feel strongly about Seth Lugo and appreciate on some bad Mets teams what he provided from a versatility perspective, whether we needed him to be the closer, whether we needed him to be the eighth inning guy, to be a starter, a long guy. Lugo did it all for the Mets. He did it all without question, and he did it all really damn well. So yes, the fan in me really feels strongly about Seth Lugo, and I hate to see this. I don't want to DFA him. I don't want to cut him. Maybe he needs an IL stint. Maybe he needs, you know, I don't know. I don't think he's got any options, but maybe he needs a quote-unquote rehab stint, you know, a BSIL, say he's got a dead arm or something and then have him rehab in the minors and work some kinks out. Because right now, he's bad, and he's a liability to this team coming out of the pen in a tight game. Right now, Seth Lugo doesn't belong pitching in any situation outside of a blowout on either side. And the thing is, it's not like the Mets don't have options, say there is a blowout situation. That's why they have now back to the pen Trevor Williams, who's supposed to be that innings eater. Say they are down by multiple runs early in a game. So it's not even like you need Lugo for that opportunity. If anything, I'm a little feeling a little at risk of, okay, maybe Lugo's going to make this a closer game than it needs to be. Like, that's just how inconsistent yeah. he's been. And it really is going to be curious how the Mets operate this bullpen that we'll be discussing shortly leading to the trade deadline because I don't even think it would be the most impossible thing to come out with the statement and say that maybe the Mets do consider parting ways with Seth Lugo to yeah. a team that can benefit them more right now than what the Mets can, especially that, a non That would break my heart. That would, would break my heart. It but, would break but, you heart. It would break your heart. But you know what? Something I learned as a Michael Conforto lover, you got to put emotions aside in, in the baseball oh, biz, right? <laughs> look, 100%. I mean, look, if it was time to make the playoff roster tomorrow and everyone's healthy, you know, McGill is back and available out of the bullpen and Holderman and Medina are options. Like, Lugo's the odd man out, right? If your objective is solely, purely and solely to go out and win games in a playoff situation, I don't see a spot for Lugo on this team. And so that's why, you know, I, I propose that idea of a BSIL stint, right? Because we've, we've seen it before. You know, you can yeah. say he's got a dead arm because he doesn't have any minor league options on his contract. So you can say he's got a dead arm, send him down on a quote unquote rehab assignment and have him work through some things because things definitely need to be worked through. I mean, you know, his breaking ball is not as consistently sharp. He'll throw two stellars and then he'll throw a flat one. His fastball is coming in on a tee. I mean, there's something seriously wrong with Seth Lugo. And I want him to figure it out. I don't want this to be the end. But Absolutely. right now, right now, and if, you know, we have a, a healthy roster to choose from, He's not one of our seven best relievers. And that's absolutely wild to say, because this guy, you know, for the better part of his tenure as a Met, I mentioned he's done it all from starting, long relief, closing. But I mean, he's been probably, you know, our most consistent, dominant eighth inning guy for the better part of his tenure as a Met. And, and right now, I don't want him in the fifth inning. I don't want him in the sixth inning. You know, it's it's really sad. Something needs to be fixed. Or to your point, it, it may be time to move on. And going from a sad note, let's wrap things up on this series with a positive note. And this is how the series began, right? You had a big pitching duel, the Battle of the Maxes, right? You got Max Freed in one side. You got Max Scherzer on the other. And thankfully, one Max truly prevailed. And it really wasn't all that close because Max Freed entered this game and did not have his stuff. He was behind in almost all of his counts. Looked a little erratic there. Something that I was beyond perplexed to see transpire. You're telling me Max Freed, one of the best Southpaws in all the NL 
is struggling with his command consistently with a Mets lineup that in the bottom half, you have no Marte, you have no McNeil. I mean, it was surprising to me. It really was. However, Freed definitely pressed. He only won five innings, five hits, two earned runs, but he had five walks for a guy that's averaging just over a walk per nine. Five strikeouts total. What did Max Scherzer do? He just casually had another phenomenal start for the Mets. Oh, you thought it was impressive enough in Cincinnati with 11 strikeouts. Oh, it's Cincy. Not a big deal. No, he enters Hotlanta, a team that has around a four-year reign on him in his career and has one of his best starts against the Atlanta Braves. Seven strong, three hits, one earned run they gave up, which the Mets got right back the following inning. Thanks to Luis Gourmet, no less. We'll get into a minute. But nine strikeouts, oh, 2.15 year rate. Mad Max has broken records. He now has the highest strikeout rate, if I'm not mistaken, through his first 10 starts as a Met in Mets history now. He surpassed Doc Gooden yep. for his strikeout rate. I think it's 33%, if I'm not mistaken. And Doc's is right around 32. So talk about immediate impact. And this was something that everyone was tweeting about, and I agree. You can rightfully argue that even now, 10 starts in, Max Scherzer is easily the most effective and impactful free agent signing the Mets have had from the jump. I mean, if, if you look at their history, it's really hard to argue what Max has done in this short period of a time, no less. Yeah, man, there's, there's no doubt about it. Look, Scherzer coming off the IL, and I know that the Mets lost, ironically, that gem he pitched at Cincinnati, one nothing. But the second Scherzer rejoined the team, they just gained a moxie that, that they didn't have, you know, a swag that this team really hadn't had for the better part of six weeks. The second Scherzer came back, and it's not just him pitching. It's him being on the bench. It's his fiery, borderline crazy competitiveness rubbing off on the guys around him. It's him being a role model. For the younger guys, the David Petersons, the Tyler McGills, you know, you heard if you were watching the SNY broadcast, which, by the way, I don't know if we've brought them up. This is episode six of Believe in Queens. And yes. I don't know if we've talked about Gary, Keith and Ron at all yet outside of Keith's uh, ceremony when we touched on that last episode. Mm -hmm. I mean, our booth is just and this is common knowledge among Met fans. They're the best. I, this series, and I, I know Ron didn't go down to Atlanta and now Keith isn't going to go to Chicago for the weekend. But this series, just listening to Gary and Keith, I watched this probably more intently, more closely than I've watched an entire three-game series in a while. As you because, should. Oh, because of the implications, because this was a playoff series. And, and just listening to Gary and Keith every night, I mean, from Keith's line about his two ex-wives, <laughs> you know, just to, to their baseball knowledge, and Keith even talking about pitching, because Ron wasn't there. I mean, you know, make no mistake about it. Keith Hernandez, not only is he the best fielding first baseman of all time, not only was he one of the best gap-to-gap uh, gap gap contact hitters of his generation, Keith Hernandez can talk pitching with the best of them. And he gets overshadowed because Darling, as great as Keith is, is an even better analyst. But, I mean, Keith, really, what he was saying about Scherzer and guys like McGill, you know, who I can't wait to have back, realizing that like Mad Max, like Justin Verlander, he may have to not throw 99 in the first, save a little in the tank in order to stay healthy, go deeper into games, right? Having Scherzer there, just it, it gives everyone else on this team more confidence. I believe it makes them more locked in. Because Max is, I mean, make no mistake about it, man. Max Scherzer is like a player coach. He's our best pitcher at the moment with no DeGrom. And he is practically the assistant manager to Buck Showalter. So just having his presence, even though he only plays once every fifth day, having his presence, having him in the dugout and around these guys makes everyone from other pitchers to position players on this team more confident. And I think it just makes them better. Having him back is so huge. Max Freed's a great pitcher. But it, it was like teacher versus apprentice in this game. I mean, it, it wasn't even – there was no question. And, you know, one's an all-star, and it ain't Scherzer, obviously, because he missed six weeks. But there was no question as to who the better pitcher was and who the better pitcher is in game one. Beautifully said from, you know, the apprentice, you know, to the teacher. I mean, that, that was just perfect because Max – what he has been able to do, again, in such a short period of time, let's not forget, this man's like 37, 38 years old, yet he has far and away the most energy out on the field every single time he's on the bump. That's something that will always blow my mind, and it further proves how much of an anomaly of a player Max Scherzer is. This is why, again, we say it all the time, and we will, the same way we will say with Jake when he's eventually back in this rotation that we'll talk about here in a minute. However, Max you know what you're getting with a future Hall of Famer. His mentality, his attitude is bar on the best out there. And to have him this locked in, you have the team locked in behind him as well. And that's why I told you in our last podcast, 
This was the most important game. Max is the closest thing to a lock of a victory the Mets will ever get from these starters not named Jacob DeGrom. I can't even say Jake because it's not like the Mets have had a stellar past of giving him run support. But regardless, going back to Max's, to get the runs, especially for Max early on, they got a couple there in the third inning. That had to feel great for Max, who, again, did not get one measly run on his side in Cincinnati. I can only imagine how much more comfortable he felt early on and start knowing, oh, I have a multi-run lead. Oh, I'm going nuts with this one. Like, there's no holding back now. I'm going to just do whatever the hell I want to do, and I'm going to strike out these Braves hitters left and right. That's exactly what he did. That led him to giving up that home run there in the seven to Austin Riley, but thankfully that wouldn't even matter because you would see the Mets get that run right back and on total win this game for one in part Luis Gourmet again what a stud he is getting himself his second bomb against Darren O'Day once they get the bullpen and how hilarious is this Luis Gourmet only has like what a couple home runs in his career and the field four and half of them are to Darren O'Day you would think that snicker understood the playbook I guess he did it because he had O'Day in for that matchup and Gourmet takes him deep to the right side I want to know Joe what was your initial reaction that because I I had my pen in my hand I pulled a Gary I like flipped my pen I lost I lost my marbles what a bomb that was. Yeah, same reaction anytime Guillaume goes deep. Holy shit, that just happened? Yeah. I mean, you know, this guy, we talked about it before, right? He doesn't strike out, which in today's age, everyone does, and they strike out at astronomical, disgusting rates, right? Guillaume's old school. He doesn't strike out, plays great defense, goes opposite field, uh, opposite field well. He's even hitting over 290 this season, right? But the one thing he doesn't do is hit home runs. So when he hit that, I was like, wow, it really is our night. Um, but you know, it's funny because as great as winning game one felt, and I know you and I were talking obviously during and after the game and we were thrilled and excited. I still had a knot in my stomach because I was still like, you know, the Mets can easily with the pitching matchups go and lose the next two. So this was a huge victory, but it's far from over. You can't squander the series. I mean, I'm so much more relaxed sitting here today after game three, knowing that we went to Atlanta, we won the series. I mean, it just, it feels so great. It's, it's, this was such a stressful last three to four days. To, I mean, just being completely honest, like Braves fans were talking their shit and they were cocky and confident, you know, best team in the National League since June 1st. Obviously, they had that 14 game win streak to start the month of June and they were doubting the Mets. And there was a chance if the Braves won this series that, you know, the Mets, depending on obviously the weekend to come, could potentially be out of first place going into the All-Star break. The Mets, who were 10 games up at the beginning of May, But right now, this is such a great feeling to know that we went to Atlanta with no Jeff McNeil, with no Starling Marte, not even going to say no to Grom, because, you know, even when DeGrom's healthy, it's a three-game series. There's always a chance he doesn't pitch, right? He's not lined up. So not even going to say that, but no McNeil, no Marte, and we just laid seven on one of the hottest pitchers in the National League. I mean, Braves fans, it's like, who are you going to blame today on? The wind again? The umpiring? The umpiring screwed us game two, so I don't want to hear anything about game one. Like, what are you gonna what are you gonna blame this on, guys? I mean, you know, really, just what a whiny fan base. I'm sorry. I hate the Phillies, hate them with a passion. The Braves still, and maybe it's because I grew up watching, you know, the Joneses, Chipper and Andrew, and you know, Smoltzy and Glavin and Maddox terrorize the Mets. The Braves are probably my least favorite fan base. Um, just because of all the years of winning, you know, Philly had that one little hot streak of a couple of years in a row when the Mets blew their lead, but Braves fans doing a lot of crying right now and a lot of excuse making. And uh, we just beat you guys fully healthy, playing hot as hell. We just beat you guys undermanned, understaffed. And I'm just, I- I'm here for all the smoke, man. This is, this is the Mets division. I love it. Why don't we get on to the Cubs? Why don't we get out to the Cubs as well? But one final thing I would just like to make a note about this series, and this was going back to how you felt originally so stressed to then feeling calm. Who else was calm, cool, and collected? That was Edwin Diaz when he went in there in the ninth. Let's just appreciate for one more minute. Edwin comes in for a third consecutive game, and he strikes out the side with ease. I mean, how great! How great was that shutting up the Braves too? Uh, uh, It was on Cano. It was it was on Cano because he's friends with Cano. So he was looking at Cano, and it was kind of you know he's like ah you know keep that mouth shut basically. But yeah, no Diaz just simply unhittable. Still, I mean, he's looked more locked in, better and better with every single time he's out there. Struck out every single batter with the slider that he had. He had the slider going down away. Then he had the back uh, back foot slider as well for the final strikeout, which I think was on Ozuna. Could be wrong. Mm-hmm. It might have been Acuna. I don't really know. All, all I do know is that literally every time Diaz is out there, I'm the most comfortable I've ever been. We talked about it last pod, yeah. and I will say it again. 
this man deserves all the credit in the world that he's pitching quite literally as the best reliever in baseball. And that's not an outlandish comment to make in the slightest. No, I mean, and Josh Hader, he, he gave up a walk-off bomb today to, to, uh, to Minnesota three run walk-off. Not my so closer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, Diaz would never, it's wild to say that now after what we saw when he first got to Queens, but yeah, man, Edwin Diaz, I'm like you, man. When, when he enters the game, the first eight innings, I might be, you know, on the edge of my seat, leaning forward. When Diaz comes in, I'm kicking my feet up. I'm enjoying life. It's uh, it's so nice. By the way, and I know we're going to get to the Cubs right now, but real quick, while we're recording this, it's uh, it's 6.20 p.m. Wednesday the 13th on the East Coast at this exact timestamp, 3.20 for me over here in L.A. And I'm watching the uh, – I got the Giants D-backs on in the background. Wilmer Flores just hit his eighth career pinch hit home run to tie the game. I just, well, my I had to... just got a little bit better. What was that? My night just got a little bit better. Thank you. Yeah, for playing I, me I had to mention that. You know, I'm not really a Flores lover like so many Met fans are, yeah. but I know that a lot of our audience is going to appreciate hearing that and just hearing the name. And he did it off a guy who the Mets might be shopping around for, Joe Mantiply of Arizona. Oh, no. just the save. Yeah, Ooh. Mantiply, who had an ERA of like one, who's going to the All-Star game. Uh, Flores, you know, he always hit lefties way better than he hit yeah. righties. And uh, San Fran was down 3 nothing in inning ago. They just tied it at three, thanks to Wilmer. So let's get into the Cubs, man. We got a four-game set leading into the All-Star break. There's not going to be an episode between this uh, the conclusion of this series and the All-Star game. We'll be back after the All-Star game. So this four-game set's coming up. We're going to see an old friend, now foe, and Marcus Stroman. He's done his fair share of talking. I got a lot Personally, to say about Stro, but we'll get to him. <laughs> I, I, always, I always rooted for him. I always defended him when he was on the Mets. Since leaving, I don't have much for the guy anymore. I want to lay one on him Friday. It's going to be Taiwan Walker, Marcus Stroman. The two of them are good friends, the two ex-teammates. That's going to be a fun pitching matchup to watch, especially fun if the Mets lay one on Stro. I'm saying, uh, you know, anything less. I could live with the Marlins split from last weekend. In this one, anything less than three out of four, I'm not happy with. 1,000%. 1,000%. The Mets just took two or three from one of the hottest teams in baseball right now in the Braves. They have to, at minimum, win three or four here in Chicago. And no, we're not going to make the argument that because the Braves lost their series, coincidentally enough, in Chicago last time they faced the Cubs. No, we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the Mets right now, how they're facing a team that's 20 games under 500. They need to take full advantage. The first game, which is this Thursday, at the time you guys listening or watching this more than likely, you have Cookie Carrasco on the bump looking for his 10th win of the season. 9-4 on the year with a 4.5 year ray. Matching up against Thompson, who's been a blessing in disguise this year in the rotation, dealing with a lot of injuries for the Cubs. The Southpaw, 7-3 with a 3-year ray, looking really rock solid. Very interested to see how the Mets will match up against this rotation where they do not have too much extended experience with and with some of these relievers too. But game two, again, this is the highlight for sure. This Friday, as you said, Ty is coming off of another beautiful start for the Mets. 7-2 with a 2.63 year rate. Facing off Marcus Stroman, the man, again, we won't deep dive too much because I can go on an hour just talking about Marcus Stroman itself. Uh, more negative than positive, unfortunately. I defended him just like you. Was one of my favorite players growing up. Enjoyed his time with the Mets. But as things uh, went, spiraled downward in the offseason, perspectives definitely tend to change. Two yeah. and five with a 4.91 ear rate. Stroh's coming off of an injury, so we'll see how he'll do. However, a couple of things to make note for Marcus Stroman. If you quickly look through his numbers in baseball, Savant, what will they tell you is that he's one of the worst stars in all baseball this season. He is in the low percentiles in a lot of the major categories that define a starting pitcher this season. At home in four starts, has just under a 10-year array. So, I mean, if I'm liking the Mets' chances of jumping on Marcus Stroman, you have to feel good, especially here in Chicago at Wrigley, where things are not benefiting him whatsoever. Massive matchup. That is my game to watch by far in this series. Friends, again, now foes against each other. It's going to be an electric matchup. We'll see if Stroh has a little bit more of a pep in his step against his former team or the Mets completely jump on him knowing that they have a strong playbook on the former Mets right-hander. Game three, we have Mad Max on the bump, 6-1 and one with a 2.15 year rate, facing off against Drew Smiley. The Mets know him pretty well. He's a veteran in the league. 4.43 year rate there on this season for Smiley. Game four, an interesting matchup to David Pearson. I'm excited to see David. I mean, I've been more giddy watching David every single time he's on the bump. I got to be honest. I have more of an interest than I really ever have been before with how much he has solidified himself of recent starts in this rotation and in large part throughout the year. Pearson, 5-2 and two with a 3.48 year rate. Facing off against Sampson, who's 0-1 with a 3.33 year rate. So when looking at these pitching matchups alone, would you agree that's pretty much Taiwan Walker and Marcus Stroman that has the game? 
That, I mean, that's the game to look at, not because Strowman's having some phenomenal season, but just because of all the behind-the-scenes implications. You know, yeah. look, I, I mean, if anything, if the Mets are going to only win three out of four, and I really want to go for, uh, you know, the, the cutthroat sweep here, but I think Thursday is probably the game that the Mets have their best chance at losing in this series. When you rattle off Walker, Scherzer, and DP back-to-back-to-back, to back to back, it's like, wow, against the Cubs? I mean, that could really bode well for the Mets. So if you win game one, I mean, all of a sudden – Eyes are on the sweep. But yeah, Walker Stroman, this is the game to look at. I'm glad you mentioned the ERA at home being nearly 10. It's 9.33, 18 and a third innings pitched at Wrigley over four starts, 19 earned runs allowed. He's allowed eight home runs on the year. Six of them have come at Wrigley. Uh, You know, it's, you got to tattoo him. You got to tattoo him. You know, it, it seems like both of us really defended Stroman when the Mets traded for him. I was ecstatic. I, oh, I, was, I was pumped. Up. I, look, I'm I'm five five. Okay, so I love my short kings out <laughs> short there. Short kings, yeah, exactly. So I'm, like, wow, I, you're, I, wait, you're five five. Yeah, yeah. Just wait you till know, we meet you know me. I'm six four, right? Yeah, I, I know. It's gonna, I can't you, wait for when we do when we do like a, a podcast photo. You're gonna have to have like your arm like on my head, like leaning. Yeah. It's gonna have to be like that. Yeah, we'll I, I want I want to pitch to you though, just because you got that small strike zone. Near oh you. yeah, good luck, good luck hitting it. That's funny, but yeah, I mean, you know, I was ecstatic, right, Stroman. Yeah, you know, he's got all of his New York ties. He's a Long Island kid. And the thought of him and Steven Matz, the two Long Island kids, like, you know, I, I was really looking forward. I wanted Stroman on this team a long time before the Mets actually went out and got yep. him. And when he got here, you know, look, he, he's an outspoken guy. And I'm 100% in favor of that. I'm okay with that. As long as your play's backing it up, have your opinions, talk your shit. You know, I, I, I could not disagree any more with the stick to sports crowd, you know, like I was always in Stroman's corner, always defending him. And then he leaves the Mets and, you know, he enters free agency and he starts talking crap about the Mets. And it's like, you know, man, so many people over here defended you when other people, you know, were, were gunning for you or other people were calling you out. I felt like New York embraced Stroman well. And I just thought it was pretty distasteful the way he started talking negatively about the Mets once he left. And so now with Stroman, it's like, you know what, dude, Good riddance. I appreciate that last year, in a very unstable year, he was one of our most consistent pitchers, pitched to an ERA of barely above three, eight innings. I can appreciate all that. But once you leave, leave on good terms, man. Don't start talking bad about this organization that took you when a lot of other organizations didn't want you. So you know what? Now enjoy your five ERA with the Cubs. Taiwan Walker hopefully is an injury replacement because he was snubbed from the original All-Star team. Hopefully, he'll be making his second straight all-star appearance as a Met, something Stroman never did. And uh, I think Walker is going to outpitch the hell out of him on Friday. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not going to tack on anything. I've talked extensively about Stroman, especially in the offseason on my channel, and it just isn't it just isn't worth it anymore. I just hope the Mets jump on him, do what they're yeah. expected to do. Do it on the field. Move, and we move on from there, right? But a couple more things about this Cubs series before we get on to our final segment of today's show. There's a couple guys to watch, and I think this will be a fun series for the Mets, not just having a four-game set against the bottom fear that, that, that they absolutely need to take advantage of, but now they can get a further playbook on some guys that very well the Mets can be pursuing if they haven't already started to pursue pursue leading up to this year's trade deadline and it starts with the likes of Wilson Contreras now again we know this we know the story with Wilson he's one of the best catchers in baseball right now and he will not come cheap even as a rental there's no denying however that he would be amazing fit for the Mets if they could get something done he has 13 bombs three five RBIs at just under 270 average and over 860 OPS on the year for the right-handed bat Ian Happ is another one that is potentially expected to be dealt. He's been in a lot of rumors. The team across town in the Bronx and the Yanks have been linked to Ian Happ earlier this year. And you look at Happ, he has nine bombs, 41 home runs for the switching outfielder and can play the infield at just under 280 average and an 820 OPS. And the big thing, another guy that I just threw in here because I'm, I'm genuinely excited to see how he's going to do versus the Mets scouting him, because that isn't going to happen. And say Suzuki. Suzuki, of course, dealt with injuries early on this year. We're going to see how he matches up. He's been swinging a hot bat, just under 300 average over his past seven games. Suzuki, six bombs, 26 RBIs on the year, 256 average and over 800 OPS. And then reliever-wise, we're talking about the man that the Mets have shown interest in and veteran David Robertson with a just over two-year array. When looking at ERA+, plus, which is very similar to OPS+, plus, basically tells you ERA+, plus, if you're at 100, 
per baseball reference, that means that you were average pitcher in baseball. David Robertson this year, he's over 200. So he's over 100% higher than what you're currently seeing. With Is that good? That, that sounds good, right? That, yeah, that's, that's pretty, pretty good. decent. I'm not going to yeah. lie for, for the veteran of right-handers. So the Mets, they've already shown preliminary interest. They started scouting Robertson, and now they're going to have them on full display and maybe just maybe show some more interest in Wilson Contreras than maybe what we have seen thus far to this point. So any takeaways about those players in particular? Any guys that you specifically are looking out for from the Cubs side of things in this four-game set? Yeah, I've got some takeaways. First off, it's funny. You saw me start to smirk a little bit when you said a guy that Mets were scouting. I thought you were going to mention David Robertson right there because the Mets are, I think, more than even Wilson Contreras. I think the Mets are scouting Robertson I this agree. series. Yes. Um, but obviously, you know, it's very realistic that if the Mets get one of them, it's going to be a package for both of them. Now, you know, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I definitely want to see Contreras here. You know, looking at his numbers more and more, uh, he's not my top target. Now, I know he brings the versatility of a guy who can both catch and play the DH position. He's not my um, top target either. I agree. You know, for me, it's still Josh Bell. Yep. I just think that Bell's splits are through the roof. And the fact that he's also a rental, you know, I don't think the Nationals are going to fleece us. I know we're a division rival, but at the end of the day, you know, what's Bell going to do in August and September for a last place team? So, you know, he's still my top target, uh, more than Mancini, more than Contreras. But Contreras, of course, has that versatility as someone who can, like I said, catch and play DH. And then Robertson, I mean, he's the big guy for me. As far as Hap, you know, having a fine year, going to the All-Star game, thought Nimmo was more deserving of that All-Star spot than Hap, personally. Uh, but it is what it is. Their numbers offensively are pretty even. I don't think Nimmo's stellar defense this year was really taken into account there. Um, but, you know, Hap's a fine ball player. Suzuki's exciting. But, yeah, this is all about Contreras and even more so Robertson. You know, I'm really curious to see Robertson. In an ideal world, I'd like the Mets to shell him a little bit, you know, inflate that ERA, make yeah, his numbers right? look a little less good and hopefully knock down his trade value. But, you know, I don't know if we'll really see Robertson in a high leverage situation because, you know, like I said, I'm looking for three out of four, maybe even a sweep here. So I don't know if we'll actually get to see Robertson in a save situation. Let's hope we don't see Robertson yeah. because, again, the Mets are just beating up and tattooing on this Cubs team in the four-game set. But, yeah, that's all you guys really need to know. I don't think we need to go into complete deep dive here. This is a series the Mets are absolutely expected to win. Fingers crossed that, of course, comes to fruition and build some type of lead. Let's see the Mets start to take advantage. We have the Braves, of course. Of course, they're playing the Nationals next because, God forbid, the, the Braves have like back-to-back -back series where they're playing competent teams. But the Mets, this is a series you need to jump on. Let's increase this lead here in the NL East heading into the All-Star break, Joe. Tyler, before we wrap it up, I want to pose a question to you. Yeah. Obviously, I mentioned earlier in the show at the very beginning, the trade deadline's a couple days later than we're accustomed to. It's usually July 31st. This year, August 2nd trade deadline. So with that said, we have time in theory. But right after the All-Star break, and again, this is our last show before the All-Star game, so I want to address this, guys. Padres-Yankees, back-to-back, five games in six days against those two teams. Both teams have 50-plus wins. Yanks, obviously, best record in baseball. Do the Mets, because of that schedule, right out of the break, five games against those two great teams. Do the Mets feel a little pressure here? And maybe right after this series in Wrigleyville, do we see Contreras and Robertson swap jerseys? Do the Mets not wait till August 2nd because of the strength of their schedule? Do they rush and make those moves sooner rather than later, in your opinion? That's a great question. I think that's a nice segue here into our final segment. But in a nutshell, it's really just going to be indicative on the market, right? That's mm -hmm. the biggest thing. I've heard Mets fans cry to me left and right. Why haven't the Mets addressed the bullpen? Why haven't they done this? Why have they done that? But the reality is there's a reason why no other ball club to this point has done any significant moves, especially contenders. There has been zero to this point. Now, if we could we see some rumblings? Possibly. However, for the Mets' sake, while I would love to see them do a deal right after the All-Star break, and I'd have to imagine that they won't just spend their break worrying about the draft, but also worrying about continuing to scout players currently in the MLB to address this team. So we could. We could see something. I don't think it's impossible. I just don't know the likelihood truly because the Mets are really doing their best to make sure that they don't jump on the market too early and sacrifice giving up far more assets, really biting off more than they can chew in that sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It's just that, you know, at some point, I'm a little less worried about nickel and diming what we give up in a trade, uh, you know, compared to the fact that, hey, the Padres, and more importantly, even though the Padres are in our league, 
More importantly, let's face it, because of pride, the Yanks are coming to town right after that all-star break. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to be running out seven, eight, nine in our lineup looking like, uh, you know, J.D. Davis, Tomas Nito. You know, I, I can live with one of those guys. But when the Yanks are in town, you're not going to probably not going to be winning a game one, nothing, two to one. It's, so, a, it's a fair point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you got to treat those games like a World Series preview. You know, obviously the Astros, the four games set with them didn't go well. The two and two split like we have coming up with the Yankees. But uh, but we got to have some urgency, I think, for those Yankee games. Yeah, no, I definitely think to a degree as well. And as long as the Mets don't, you know, overstep things, which I don't expect them to, maybe, maybe just maybe we'll see at minimum one move prior to that Subway Series matchup. It's going to be very interesting to see. But to get into our final discussion on the day, and this goes in hand with what should the Mets prioritize here at the trade deadline? Like if we do our rankings, right? Because Sandy Allerson just came out. He was, I believe, with uh, John Heyman and that being in Joel Sherman for the New York Post was on their podcast yesterday. And he broke down really what the Mets issues are right now and what they plan to prioritize. So I want to know what your reaction is to that, Joe, if you agree, disagree. And really the type of players, again, if there's anyone else that we haven't discussed yet that you may feel as a reality more versus a pipe dream. But a quote specifically from the podcast that Sandy was just on over this past day is the following. And I quote, we've got him on the lowest GH productivity in the game. Take Pete Alonzo out of it, and we've, we're in, we're in even worse poor situation. We've been waiting all season for one or two of those players to ignite, and that hasn't happened. Obviously, he's referring to exactly J.D. Davis and Dom Smith without naming names. So what has been – Without ideal, pointing fingers here, he's talking about you. Exactly, 100%, which I don't know why they even bother. It's like yeah. it's no different as if you have a rotation and your rotation starts studded and you have one guy that has like a completely terrible year and they say, oh, well, there's one guy in this rotation that isn't pitching to the liking that we would like to see. Um, but going yeah. off of that tangent quick, yeah, Sandy has made it clear that DH is right at the tippity top of the list for the Mets. Even a little bit more prioritized than maybe what we expected, I don't know, a month, month and a half ago. Bullpen is up there as well. But Joe, in your opinion, do you, do you agree with the notion that DH is basically 1A? You could rightfully argue with the Mets and how they're trying to address things by the trade deadline with the bullpen being right up there. Or do you think that the Mets should really prioritize pitching more than anything else? Let's hear your take. Yeah, no. So normally nine times out of 10, I'm saying pitching is key. Pitching wins championships. You got to prioritize pitching. In this case, though, it's not even a 1A, 1B. DH is your clear-cut biggest need, right? We're, we're in a more offensive league than ever before now. First year of the universal DH, not counting uh, the COVID, you know, 2020 Pony League season. You need a DH, right? JD and Dom, I, these are guys just like Seth Lugo. I love them. Dom's hitting a buck 98. Now he's put some good swings on the ball. Today hit a rocket to the gap that Acuna had him played really well defensively. But, you know, DH is just the Mets. I, it wouldn't shock me if outside of, you know, the few games that Pete DHs, if the Mets DH productivity is dead last in all of baseball. I mean, I don't have the number on that, but it wouldn't shock me at all if we're not, you know, forget 28th, 29th, dead last in all of baseball. So DH is your clear cut need. And I'm going to lump catcher in with that. Because the truth is, you know, if we get Wilson Contreras, he'll be getting a lot of reps in a DH, probably only catching about a third of the games. Um, because Nito and McCann are just, I mean, you saw Nito today, threw out Acuna from his knees. Oh, I yeah. Mean, he's, he's been on the, the money best, lately. And he's the best base stealer in baseball. The guy's already got, what, 17 stolen bases, and he's played like a half a season. Mm -hmm. So Tomas Nito, I mean, even better than McCann defensively. The two of them are studs defensively, and I need to emphasize that. Um you know, because obviously we know that sometimes what they bring to the table offensively is a little lacking. Uh, so I, I lump Contreras in in that DH discussion. DH clear-cut top need, followed by bullpen. And then, as I mentioned, because of how solid David Peterson's been and really showing he is a major league starter, and he's really not a number five starter. If he could just go a little deeper into games on average, this is a guy who is a middle-of-the-rotation guy, a three or even a high-end four. And uh, so because of that, it would go DH, bullpen, and then starting pitching on my on my biggest need power rankings. And I think we're around the same wavelength. You know, for me personally, I think I have bullpen at number one for the okay. sole purpose that bullpen is the thing that I think could bite the uh, the Mets in the ass most come playoff time. I think that they could have more issues versus, say, having one glaring hole in their lineup if they get productivity from the catching position. Now, if they don't, which I kind of don't expect them to, then we're looking at minimum two you know seven out of the nine for the laps looking strong otherwise not too hot 
but bullpen has just been a continued problem for this Mets team or home run rate. Again, I know that they play the Braves, so I'm not trying to view this as the Braves or every team that they're playing. But even when they aren't playing the Braves, it doesn't matter who they're matching up with. We are here and really wondering how much of length we are going to get from this bullpen on an everyday basis. I mean, God forbid that the Mets get consistency at that position because there's been so Jekyll and Hyde. The Mets had a horrendous month of June with the bullpen. And here in July, it hasn't been anything drastically better either when looking at home run rates are consist- consistently up still. And I'm just, I really need the Mets to address this bullpen. I think that that is probably my 1A. Then my 1B, which I would have right there, is DH slash catcher position. I think that's huge as well. I mean, for the most part, again, we're on the same terms here, but the DH especially, we all know the Mets want to address it. I'm excited that it's been already discussed from Sandy and widely reported that the Mets are going in on this because this is a year, this is something where it felt like maybe in years past where maybe the Mets do not do enough in that one spot that definitely could be needed. However, I feel confident the notion that the Mets are going to address every single one of the holes they currently have in this lineup. Now, again, the biggest question is addressing one thing to what degree is the other, and that is going to be the big question, the big if, if you will, as we get closer to this trade deadline. And then all the way at the bottom of my totem pole, I know it's a surprise because I was the complete opposite for a while, is starting pitching. It goes directly in hand with what we've seen now, and I said if Max Scherzer comes out guns blazing, if David Pearson provides production, if Trevor Williams provides quality depth, it's hard to argue that the Mets should can be all in on the sense of a Luis Castillo, a Frankie Montas, guys that are going to cost you an arm and a leg when you don't necessarily need to do that and can focus more in the avenues that are best fit for your team right now. And it's hard to argue that best fit is not the likes of addressing bullpen DH slash catcher. So I'm excited. I fully expect them to address every area of need. It's just going to be that big question mark to what degree, right? Are they going to go out and get themselves the best bat available? Is it going to be a Josh Bell? Or are they going to be lower on the tone pole and maybe go after a Charlie Blackman or a Brandon Drury who has thrived, for instance, with the Reds one time met, maybe comes back to Queens, right? Are they going to add more than one bat? These are all questions I'm so excited to find out. And all I know is that as we get close to the trade deadline, these assumptions, these rumors will, by all means, become more of a reality. Yeah, and, and I'll say this is my final remark on you know on this topic and then on the show, ultimately. The reason for me that DH is more pressing than bullpen, and I agree, you know, for the regular season, for this divisional race with Atlanta, we definitely need bullpen help. But at the end of the day, and maybe one of my faults is that I look too far ahead too often, looking ahead to the playoffs, at the end of the day, I trust a core. You know, in the playoffs, don't forget – your, your fifth, sixth, seventh you're relievers, a great point. I they're seldom used. And you know I'm going to say this. Starters become relievers yeah. in the postseason. So yeah. I'm looking at, you know, even though, although, honestly, I think when McGill comes back, I think he might, if everyone's healthy, McGill might just be back as a reliever this year. I so think I'm looking he's going at, to be, yeah. Yeah, so I'm looking at McGill as a, as a bullpen option. I'm looking at right now our, our core four of Diaz, Adovino, Holderman, and Drew Smith not even counting Medina, who I would rather see on the postseason roster as a bullpen Trevor arm May. than Lugo. Trevor May is on his way back from injury. Uh, you know, Carrasco, Peterson might be in the bullpen. You know, I'm not even mentioning Lugo or Joely Rodriguez. So it's like, to me, at the end of the day, we're going to, in a playoff format with a playoff, you know, a, a playoff built roster, we're going to have relievers. It's, are you going to have offense? Are you going to have a DH who can go up against Judge, Stanton, Alvarez, you know? Uh, I mean, the Dodgers' endless uh, slew of bats, right? So at the end of the day, I know that, you know, the Mets might need bullpen help right now, and I'm probably looking too far ahead in that respect. But I think when October rolls around and you're working with a four-man starting rotation, I I mean, the thought of Peterson probably pumping 97 out of the pen or McGill pumping 99 out of the pen, like, those are pretty sexy thoughts to me right now. They are, and that's a great point. You know, when I was evaluating bullpen, I still, again, think it's at the tip of the top of the Mets list along with DH. I wasn't really thinking in that moment, at least, the impact that starters will have in the pen. So that's a great point, and that honestly changes my perspective slightly where I'm more in agreement with you that maybe that bat is just the main thing the Mets need to get, and then bullpen right behind it. 
you know, and then go on from there. But with that being said, Joe, unless you have any final remarks, I think that's going to wrap it up here for episode six of Believe in Queens, guys. We thank you so much for watching and listening. If you're here on YouTube on Wardy NYM, the YouTube channel, please don't hesitate once more from smashing that like and subscribe on. It's always greatly appreciated, folks. Trust me, we are having an absolute blast here presented by the Believe Network. We're so excited because it looks like we are an episode or so away from having our third co-host being a former New York Mets. So get ready for that announcement. It's coming very, very soon. So yeah, I know we've been talking about it. We've been hinting at it for a while, but there's a reason for that. Cannot wait for that to come in full uh, fruition. You see him here on the show, guys. But outside of that, make sure to make sure you rate, review, wherever you get your podcasts as well, especially on audio. I know that many of you guys maybe aren't aware of us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts overall. Make sure to check them out there if you aren't listening here on the video version or if you want to maybe make sure that you watch and you can't watch if you want to hear it on the audio version on your trip to work or whatever you're doing. Make sure to do exactly that. And again, follow me on Twitter at WordyNYM. Greatly appreciate it. And Joe, where can everyone find you? Catch me on Instagram at Joe Serralo, on Twitter and TikTok at the Joe Serralo. Uh, every Thursday, don't forget, 7 p.m. Eastern. I believe, yeah, by now, when this episode drops, it's already Thursday. So 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Catch my weekly national radio show, Serralo Sports Talk on SportsMap Radio. And uh, the last remark I'll make, because, you know, I, I obviously am a big sports better. I give out picks on my socials every day. So, you know, if you follow me on Twitter at the Joe Serralo, you'll see daily winners. I'm, what am I, 27 and 5. 32 picks in the month of July. I'm 27 and 5 this Not month. Bad. Max Scherzer against the Cubs, 10 starts. He's 5 and 2, 89 strikeouts in 10 <laughs> starts. Nine Ks per game. He's gone eight or more in his last four. So if Scherzer's line is seven and a half, Hammer that against Chicago this weekend. I will even go a step further to say that if you do not have that minimum nine, it would kind of be silly. I think that really Scherzer is going to strike out a bunch of those Cubs. Wishful thinking, no less. But Yeah, they're a bottom 10 strikeout team in baseball, Chicago. Bottom 10, I mean, in terms of having a uh, one of the 10 worst K rates. Yes. So I, I think that's going to play to Max's advantage. I believe that's Saturday he goes up against them. Yes, it is. That's going to be awesome. I can't wait, guys. Make sure to check out Joe with his picks on his Twitter, as always. And again, thank you all once more for listening. This was episode six of Believe in Queens, and we'll, we will see you all later next week to preview the upcoming Padres series. Have a great one, folks. Let's go Mets. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.